right, guys, welcome to episode three of the uh, Temple of Who podcast. Once again, I just want to say uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, all the feedback and the listening I'm getting. It's uh, it's just very, uh, very, very pleasing. Basically, very, I'm very appreciative of all you guys supporting the podcast. Uh, tonight's guest is somebody special who I brought in specifically to have a certain conversation about uh, about basketball. I got uh, Joseph Gill from Merck Analytics. Joseph, what's going on, man? Oh, man, just living the dream right now. How about you, Jason? Good, just trying to stay safe. I'm glad basketball's back on. Need a little more incentive to stay in the house and, you know, kind of out of harm's way with this stuff going on. So before we get into, you know, our conversation that, you know, we've talked to in private about on several occasions, just uh, tell me a little bit about what you do at Merck Analytics, your uh, your company, about as far as helping out players and organizations and just how you got that going and what, which, what do you use it for? Yeah, man, so, I mean, I – I kind of always tell people like I felt I felt bad uh, butt backwards in analytics. Like I was a former player who just had awful knees, and um, it didn't even really work out for me much in high school. Never mind my brief college career. So, um, you know, by the time I was 20 years old, I played in like three games in the past four years of my career, and it was like time to start evaluating other options. And um, my transition from from like scout to to you know want to be scout to <laughs> want to scout uses analytics to to analytics guy. To actual, you know, analytics, uh, uh, you know, person with clients, uh, business, if you will. Um, it, it's long. It takes it takes a long time to explain. But basically, what I do these days is uh, I kind of uh, believe that there's a, a mass market inefficiency right now, especially in professional ranks, where um, you have all this incredible data out there. You get all this, you know, just all these incredible resources, um, and it seems like players get almost none of it. And so, you know, what I try to do mm. is I try to, you know, bring you know, whatever percentage you think it is, if you think it's 60, 70, 80, whatever percent of what an NBA front office can do for an analytical capacity, I do it for my clients, you know. Um, and the great thing about that is that my, you know, my inter- my my time is spread among, you know, X amount of guys, but, you know, my my uh, incentive is I want to make money. You know, where a right. team's trying to make money and they're telling you what to do, but that might not be in the player's best interest to make money. I am just, you know, concerned about exactly how you can play better, how you can be a more efficient offensive player. You become a more efficient offensive player. You're a coach, Jason. What do, what do the efficient guys do? They, they go from the bench to the starting rotation. Exactly. They go from taking exactly. four shots to taking seven shots. You know, and that's, you know, at your level, that might make the difference between a scholarship and not a scholarship. And the NBA level, that's exactly. the difference between, you know, rolling in a uh, in a Range Rover and rolling in a Phantom. You know, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's worth it to, to bring in someone like me, even for a guy, you know, who's 12th, 11th man on the bench currently, you know, and has those starting aspirations. Right. So, I'm glad you said that about as far as uh, kind of reaching out and offering the analytics side of it to the players. Uh, I want to speak about bridging that gap because um, analytics is kind of a hot topic in general because of the way it, it, it's perceived. Part of it for me is it's the way it's 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 used. Um, for, first off, I think all information is good. I think that the, the data out there it's it's very good. My problem with analytics is the application because. It's kind of gone from uh, let's use this data to make the game more understandable for the consumer and easier for everybody to, you know, digest and see what they're looking at. And it's gone from that to I'm just going to use this to show everybody how much of a smart ass I am. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of where it loses me. It's, and it's a turnoff to casual, casual fans, right? Basketball struggling with ratings. And it's a Dude, I would, I would, argue, I would say it's a to everybody. You know, who 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 likes having that guy at your party? You know, yeah. like, you, <laughs> right. you got thirty people coming, and someone's like, "Hey, I'm bringing Brian." Also, <laughs> he needs you to know how smart he is about this topic. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you know, and so like, I, 
to take the football from you, you know, I'm not sure you actually posed the question there. Um, yet, I mean, that gap is a chasm, in my opinion. I mean, like, we, we could honestly, we could have a weekly podcast and just talk about that, in, you know, and of course, <laughs> right. get all the way there. So, yeah, that was a, so what, what do you think, like, um, what do you think can be done to just kind of bridge that gap between uh, the, the analytics and just making the game understanding and trying to get kind of get rid of that, get rid of that. I want to be the smartest guy in the room mentality. My thing was, I think the guys who are at the top, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, with the biggest social media platforms out there, they should probably do a better job of, you know, not stop trying to gate, gatekeeping of sort, you know, trying to hoard, hoard, hoard information or hoard or hold it over people's head or I'm smarter than you and this is how you should see the game. Like, just explain to me how do you feel that should be, like that should happen. No, I mean, honestly, we, we could literally talk for an hour on that. I, and then first of all, I, I agree 100% with your assessment. And, you know, the one thing I'll say for analytics that's tough is that it is an information economy in the sense where, you know, like if, if, if we were able to, to bring 100 kids in the room and teach them exactly how to be Giannis, um, <laughs> the, the chances of any of them growing to, to be able to leverage those skills in, a, in an effective way in a basketball court are almost none. But, you know, if, if, if you're an analytics guy and you are able to give away all your secrets, there's no barrier to entry. So it kind of makes for this really weird situation where, um, first of all, I get it. Um, I, I'm very protective of my exact process, obviously. Um, you know, I, I try to definitely be a part of the solution, not part of the problem with what we're, you're talking about, where, um, you know, I, I definitely found during my time in analytics that, you know, a lot of the best analytics is really practical or actionable stuff. You know, if you're a coach or you're a player, um, you know, how much your bringing value as far as a real dollar amount is a really cool thing to know, mm-hmm. but that doesn't help you make more of it. You know, it right. just tells right, you where right, you're right. right now. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely think that like right now in analytics, there's a big push to try to be like the most analytically clean, the, you know, the person with the stats who are the, the noise, you know, the, the, have the least noise, least amount of variance, you know, the most airtight argument that you can have for math people. But that doesn't extend well into basketball people. And so, you know, what I've always tried to do is, um, you know, what I've always said, I, like my, my focus has, has never been like, I don't, I want to be the smartest guy in the room. I, I, when I'm working with a player, I want to help them bring about the most positive change. And that is completely a different person, you know, from the, from the yeah. guy I just mentioned where, you know, like I'm, I'm not one of the first things I always tell players when, when we're meeting face to face, they're like, Hey man, like this is weird. Like we can, we can acknowledge that this is weird that I'm talking with you. And then I was a former D3 player and you've made, <laughs> or about to make a ton of money. But that being said, there is a reason why this meeting is happening. And that is because, you know, over the years, I've done a good enough job where I keep getting brought back somehow, um, you know, and you've been doing a good job at, at you know, your career. And so here we are. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I definitely think that, you know, we talked about this multiple times where, you know, when analytics first came in the forefront and like really started bubbling up into the service of the basketball discussion. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently in development of an analytics lecture series actually for Startup Down Texas. And, um, oh, so nice. Yeah, no, and I'm, it's, it's gonna, it's, hey, I, analyst guys are probably not gonna be a fan of me, but coaches, I think, are gonna, are gonna find actionable stuff in it, cause, you know, it's gonna be practical analytics. It's not gonna be, you know, all these spreadsheets on, you know, calculating just raw numbers. But anyway, you know, analytics has been around in sports, you know, even going back to like the 1960s, like Sandy Koufax went from, you know, a spot starter slash a reliever to one of the greatest pitchers in MLB history because uh, Alan Roth, who was one of the first analyst guys in sports, was basically like, hey, man, this is what happens when you throw your first pitch for a strike versus when you throw your first pitch for a ball. And it literally made him one of the most dominant, you know, it was among other things. So that was one of the main focuses. But, you know, that right there is kind of a mechanism of, of why analytics in basketball is hard because there's no linear structure to the game, right? That, that's what I was thinking. Like, it's, it's a little different in, 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 bas- in baseball because baseball, you know, like I said, there's a linear structure. It's not as free flowing. Like there's the stops and starts. So I think uh, 
that that was my worry about how basketball they're trying to the story about basketball is being told like it's baseball and the game right. is so much different. It's like it's more baseball can be more scientific and basketball is more like kind of music or artsy, right? Where it's like there's a lot of free flow to it. So I think that's the kind of the difference between the two. But you know, no, I, I totally agree. And that's you know that's kind of why like when when I'm going into a room and I'm I'm talking to a player I never talked to before and I've got my you know like these are my three pointers that I think are strengths you might not know about. These are my three pointers that are weaknesses I might not know about. You know, oftentimes they're very broad. All right, so Joseph, what what inspired me to ask you to come on the show? Um, first off, I think I I follow you for a reason. I, I enjoy everything you bring. You made me think about the game a different way. I like I like following guys like that. Maybe look at the game differently. Um, the likewise. second thing is uh, I, I think this analytics versus the eye test thing. There's got to be a common ground here. So I, I heard extremes on two different ends. So the first thing that made me raise my eyebrows was I saw you know. They said Jamal Carper is the best six man of all time, and that just made me. That's from eye test to it. I was just like, uh, okay. <laughs> hey man, Bill Walton did some pretty good things too, but yeah, know, yeah so I think Jamal scored better. Yes, yeah, so he said Jamal Carper is the greatest six man ever, and, and you know, I hate the Spurs as a Laker fan, but Ginobili to me is you know, as far as giving yourself to winning and you know playing a role and doing whatever it takes to win, regardless, yeah, of that, yeah. I think he's the. And then on the other end, I got guys that are telling me, you know, Chris Middleton is a top 10 player on the analytics side because of his – something like, we have got to find a common ground somewhere with this. So tell me where you stand on those things and how we can, like, find a middle ground between eye test and analytics. Um, I mean, it's – I definitely think, like, you know, we can start from a place of, of where I often start with players, talking about absolute value versus relative value. Okay. Because, you know, I, I can definitely hear the argument that, you know, hey, maybe – Maybe Chris Middleton's absolute impact, you know, by some metrics, is a top 10 player. But, you know, what those numbers can't always take into account is it's probably a little bit easier to play with Giannis than most of the other guys in the league, obviously. Nuance. Uh, Nuance. Yeah, truly. Context. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I always tell people, like, nothing in basketball, you know, but nothing in a basketball game exists in a vacuum except for the final score. So, you know, like, we can acknowledge, you know, that the nuance is important, but at the same time, we do always kind of have to be grounded back to that absolute value. You know, <laughs> you know for, for Jamal Crawford, it's really interesting because, you know, I took a very, very simplistic approach, right? I just went to my synergy, and I basically took what Jamal, like, you know, what's, what's Jamal Crawford's best attribute throughout the course of his entire career, you know? Shot making, right? Like right, he's right. he's the guy where you know there's seven seconds on the shot clock and you got Jamal Crawford on your team. You're you're you know you're saying a rosary as you pass him the ball, right? Because he's going to get you a look. Um, you know, for most of his career, it was incredible actually. You know, up until I think it was his year 38 season, Jamal Crawford in the final four seconds of the shot clock was more efficient than every team in the NBA in that situation, right? And so, right, you know, truly, like, you know, you just, for those listening on audio, you just rock back like, oh, my gosh, that's the value of Jamal Crawford, right? You know, when, when if, you, if you can, you know, obviously it's hard to, you know, we're kind of comparing one apple to bags of apples where, you know, maybe on those teams they had another guy who was also very good, you know, in the last four seconds. That was kind of offset by the fact that when that guy was out of the game, it was a guy in his second year who had to take on that load and he wasn't really able right, to. right. But, you know, that's still that's still incredible. You know, for the last – for two years in a row, he was number one out of 30. And then, I believe it was in his year 38 to 39 season, he went from first among NBA teams 
to in the course of the summer last. And, you know, like, obviously in that situation, I believe that was the first year he was in Minnesota because then he had a year with the Suns where he actually went lower than that. Um, you know, and so it's kind of one of those things where, like, you know, we can acknowledge that the situation was very bad. And I watched a lot of those Tibbs-Wolves games with Jamal Crawford. It was not a great situation. I have not watched as much with him on the Suns, but I know what the Suns are about, so I know it was probably a little bit worse. Um, you know, and then it kind of comes back into that thing where, you know, like, we got to just kind of try to make the best decision with all the information available to us. You know, obviously we know the players get worse as they get older. That's not a knock on Jamal. Um, you know, we know the times undefeated truly. And once players start going that slide, um, you know, it's, it's probably not reclaimable, you know, for most players, especially someone who, you know, and Jamal Crawford is, I, 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 I respect his game so much because Jamal Crawford was the type of player that I always wanted to be growing up in Long Lake, Minnesota, 800 people. I wanted to have the sham God. I wanted to, you know, have that, that, that <laughs> in the back dribble. I did not have those things, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I still aspired to be that guy. Um, but, you know, we, we can we can weigh all that together and say to ourselves, we're like, yeah, the situation was probably bad. But, you know, based on the information that we have available to us, I I was advocating for Jamal to just be retired. I, I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to work. You know, and the bubble might be a little bit of a different situation where, you know, maybe that uh, scoring punch is more needed. Maybe, you know, even if there is a gradual decline of efficiency, even if those situations were bad and suppressing his value in those moments, maybe he's able to overcome and he's able to be solid. I would love that. You know, I, I definitely – I always say, like, you know, I, you know it. I, I've crushed guys before on Twitter. I, I have – and it, it truly is nothing personal because I root for everybody. I, I, you know, in this industry, you're very acutely aware of the fact that you can root for everybody because not everyone can make it, you know. So there, there's no harm in rooting for a dude who you think isn't going to make it because, you, what, are you going to root, root for sadness in that guy's life? You're right, 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 right. 30 years old being like, man, I blew it. Um, you know, it's also funny because, like, I've literally – like taken verbatim word for word what I tweeted about a player and then I get hired to work for that player and six months later I'm just copy paste in the report you know (laughs) I don't don't tweet I I tweeted some pretty mean things I would not feel at this point I would not feel uncomfortable saying basically anything I've tweeted to a player's face because it's truly just how I feel so you know when when you weigh all that together and that kind of works both ways for for both examples we've got two extreme players you know here too where you know the the question is does Jamal have anything in the tank we haven't even talked about defense I'm sorry Jamal the numbers aren't great there um you know does Jamal have anything left in the tank versus is Chris Middleton really at the upper echelons um you know it's definitely tough to, to say with any amount of absolute knowledge because we haven't seen it in the ideal situation for experimenting so you know, based on what we have, you know, available to us, let me put it this way. I would love to have Chris Milton on my team um, because you know, every once in a while, a Chris Milton player, you know, is actually a Pascal Siakam player in disguise, right? We're like, you know, you think he's a second gun, you know, and then all of a sudden God. he's in the primary role, exactly. And then, you know, some some archetypes of players, they perform better as second guns than first. Some is the opposite, you know? Um, heliocent- uh, heliocentrism, I don't even know how you say it, you know, <laughs> that, that goes to show that I'm not a true analytics guy or a basketball person. Um, you know, but it, it works much better for Russell Westbrook when he's the guy in the middle versus the second guy in the side with Harden, you know. So it, it, on a case-by-case basis, it's just it's so, so, you know, nuance. And, you know, this conversation that we're having right now, um, for whatever reason, it feels like was not often had in the early days of analytics where, you know, I, I always feel like the analytics guys feel like they'd win a war of attrition on the basketball people, right? <laughs> where, like, you know, over a long period of time, you know, they'll come over to our side because we are truly superior. And, you know, I, unfortunately, you know, definitely, hey, I'm an analytics guy. I, I, I see the appeal of analytics. I definitely believe that, you know, over the long run, analytics is able to beat mo- more eyes than not, right? Um, that being said, you know, a more inclusive way to go about that could have easily been, you know, 
starting from square one and really doing a, a pretty solid job of actually having outreach to a community that probably would have accepted analytics had it been a little bit less abrasive, a little bit less condescending. You know, we see remnants of that all over the place today. I mean, I, I mean, I've been condescending to people on Twitter too, but at the same time, like, you know, when I'm talking with someone like you, Jason, I'm talking with someone like Engrass, I'm talking with someone like Trevor, um, you know, I'm talking with someone like Cameron who you had on, or even Clint Parks. I mean, like, there's no reason why Clint Parks and I should be able to get along. Right. Yeah. At the same time, like, you know, there's that, there's that, I, don't, I can't speak for him obviously. Um, but you know, when I look at Clint, I see somebody where, you know, I, I definitely, you know, talking to the people he's been around, I, I hear that Clint Parks is big on game speed reps. And I, and I love game speed reps, man. I mean, that, that to me is like a tenet of my practice philosophy or my, my yep. workout philosophy. Yep. You know, find that common ground where, like, Clint and I are probably never going to agree in a mid-range discussion, but we can probably agree on a lot of things, <laughs> including social issues, you know, practice right. habits, you know, the fact that, you know, say, hey, you know, the, the, the lay of the land. And, you know, it, it, it definitely feels like talking with some of the old school analytics guys, even the new school analytics guys, that they just want to argue all day. And it's like, nah, man, I want to have a conversation, right? Like, I want to I I drop a factoid on you, Jason, that makes you blow back in your chair where you're like, well, what was that? Like, that is, that is out of, you know. And th- but then, of course, reel it back to a more nuanced opinion, you know, at hand. So I, I just, I, I definitely feel like there just, there wasn't that initial conversation. I feel like there was probably a little bit of insecurity on the fact of some of these analyst guys really don't feel like they're respected um, because of their basketball playing background. And it, it's unfortunate, but it's also reality where, you know, what's the number one way you can improve at something by doing that thing, you know, it's a, I, it, it just, but you can go to, to your credit. I will say this though. There are a ton of people who, uh, a guy will have an informed opinion about something on a basketball court, and their response is, "Oh, well, you didn't play, so you can't say anything, right?" So right. there's that, definitely that it goes it goes both ways. I just want to say that too. Oh yeah, that's that, that's wrong. But also, I mean, like today, Bull Bull had a pass that I thought was a pretty unnecessarily flashy pass on a fast break, and I had I had a five eight dude in my mentions telling me that I don't know how centers run fast breaks. It's like, bro, I ran fast breaks, all right. I know about passing angles. I, like, you know, I, I don't know I don't know how you walked yourself into this one where you're arguing with a center used to handle the ball who don't really exist in the wild these days right. about, you know, passing angles versus where, where the defense is set up. But, like, you know, you can't tell me that my playing experience was wrong because I got offers doing this, bro. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you, that you, that you identify something in the film that works in rec ball, but you know, so there, there has to be, there has to be a medium, right? Because at the same time, if what I'm saying right now is hundred percent true, I could never work with any of my guys because what could I teach them? Right, you know, exactly. exactly. You know, and def, I, I feel like the packaging, the framing of it all, you know, like just, and I, I never, I, I can, I can very safely say I've never once had a conversation with any of the guys I've worked with that, that was like, Hey, this is how it is. It's always a conversation because I don't know their their game like they know their game. They know right, their right, right. They're the ones who've been in the gym on the grind. I mean, Jason, can I tell you everything about the top ten moments of your basketball history? <laughs> right. No. no. Of course not. I, I can't. Why, why would I even want to try to tell you how you feel about a mid range jumper? Maybe you won a state championship on a mid range jumper. Maybe your girl said, I love you, babe, and your dad came back and slapped you in the bag and said, I'm so proud of you, and everyone cheered and they chanted your name. And then I, this dopey-looking dude, is like, stop taking that shot. Like, how would anybody feel in that situation? But at the same time, if it's a 35% shot, it goes in 35% of the time. So you also need to, you know, start start maybe thinking, like, hey, that was a nice moment. So, but so what you're talking about is, is a common ground, pretty much. be common ground. Truly, you know. Yeah, and, kind of, and kind of just branching off a little bit into your the mid-range thing. Here's my thing about Mid range, so you can chime in with how you feel about him. No, I think, well, my thing about what you have to say. Like, like, so, I'm not gonna chime in. You, yeah. you, so my, my, my thing about mid range jumpers is is that um, uh, 
in the playoffs specifically when the defense gets extremely tight, when, you know, the basket's protected, got the best defenses are roaming around, cutting off the three, guys are rotating, cutting off the basket. That shot is a, is a necessity, I think, in some situations where you just you got to get a bucket. And they're doing, being such a – the prime example of this was Kawhi against Philadelphia last year, right? they great defenders all over the floor. They're closing out to threes. They're shutting off the basket. And he just kind of has a, a guy need to score. And I right. think um, even the threat of it is is helpful because Harden's the extreme example where he just won't take them and teams know to defend him. Okay, rim, three-pointer. It got to the point where Utah was playing behind him at one point, I think, just to just try to stop the step back. My old, my old physical therapy buddy. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like uh, – I'm like, just if he would just have just the threat of like, like he might take this 15, 17 footer, it changes up how we defend him, and even we could it could open up what he likes to do even more. But they know right. he's not going to take it, so you know it's it's easier to defend. And you know he's had his playoff struggles in big moments. So just what do you think about that? As no, far I mean, like, as the the thing, like I'm not going to tell you to feel about your your argument, but like what I hear is a pretty. It's not you're, you're not attaching hard numbers to it. Because you're not a loser like me who spends five hours a day looking at hard numbers. But you, you, I, I truly think you are making an analytical argument in the sense where, you know, you, you've identified something that is different from the postseason in the playoffs, that scoring efficiency goes down, numbers say it does. And therefore, you know, if you're treating like a season game, you can't be playing it optimally, which is an analytical argument. The thing that's tough, though, is, you know, like this is kind of where it, it's, it's very – interesting to like hear you know conversation like this because like this is like first level thinking right where it's like I've identified something I'm not really sure exactly where the lay of the land is but I've got a very good idea of the general lay of the land right yeah. and then you know it's kind of tough because you know to really go to that extra level I feel like for analytics you got to kind of dig into okay so like you know what would be good things to measure to see how correct I am about this claim or if I am correct and I do think you are correct um, in fact, one, well, you know, it's funny, one, one of the first things that ever led me into analytics was I made this argument back when I was playing. I wrote like a 3,000-word article, and I was saying that Maury Ball can't work against the Blazers because they had a Marcus Aldridge. And it's, it, it was interesting, though, that, you know, like when you really start getting into the numbers, because what, what you're saying is true. The thing that's tough, though, is to what scope, Right. Because, you know, let's say that, like, you know, optimal mid-range shooting is with, like, three seconds on the shot clock, it's free game, right? Take as many mid-range as you want. I think that's a pretty, you know, fair thing to say, right? Maybe it's four, maybe it's five, but it's in that general area, right? Right, right, right. Maybe in the playoffs, when we run the numbers, it comes out to, like, maybe seven or eight seconds on the shot clock. You know, it is also interesting, though, because when you kind of start getting into the guts of, like, what drives efficiency, you know, my favorite statistic is points per possession. I have, like, a binder that I can basically bring out and be like, this is why I love points per possession, PPP. I cite it probably 100 times a day. Yeah, I've seen you. I've seen you. Just describe yeah, what you, that is. Describe what that is before you while you complete yeah, so it. So it, it, it's a perfectly weighted efficiency metric for individuals. It takes everything that they do on the floor that could end a possession, be it a shot attempt, uh, a foul, where free throws are attempted or a turnover. Um, and then weights, all that. So those are all tied together as possessions. And then it takes, you know, how many points you score divided by those possessions. And then you have a good idea of exactly when that player was, you know, you, using a possession either by choice when they take a shot or they get fouled or passively when, you know, the ball gets taken away from them on a turnover because those count too. It, you can kind of get a pecking order of, you know, when somebody is using a possession, how efficient are they on it? Because the thing about basketball is crazy to think about conceptually is that, like, it's a, it's a turn-by-turn tug-of-war. It's got way more, you know, back, um, back and forth. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I always tell guys where it's like every shot goes in some amount of time, right? Like, you know, if you want to hoist me up on your shoulders and I've been taking 120 foot shots, if we wait a week, I'm going to hit one, you know, so like, <laughs> no such thing except for a turnover. There's no such thing as a zero point per possession possession, right? Right, right, right? The real question is, are you taking a shot? 
that is better than the opponent's average offense? Because if you are, you're helping elongate that advantage that you have, or are you taking a shot that's worse than the average, you know, uh, offense of your opponent? Because if that's the case, then you're shortening it. And then, of course, you know, in late shot clock scenarios, all of a sudden you have this calculus of, like, you know, is this a good enough shot for where we are on the shot clock? You know, is this is this a decent point to cash out our possession on? To kind of think about it as, like, a day trading thing um, or, like, you know, any any sort of trading thing or, you know, like cutting your losses, right? Or right, is right, it, right. you know, the first is – this, is this a mid-range being taken off one pass? This guy's a 40% mid-range shooter. That's a 0.8 point per possession shot. There are very few leagues in the world, high school, college – pro especially where that's going to be a better shot than the opposing team's average offense, you know? And so, yes, this is, but these are the conversations, right? This is, this is the conversation that you have to have on analytics where, you know, like a stat like wind shares, PER box score plus minus. uh, I don't even like, there's some of the newer ones that, that, you know, I think it's PIP. Raptors. Yeah. Raptors. Thank (laughs) you. I, I, I tell you this, man. I've made I've made a lot I've made a lot of bets against uh, 538 just like you know casual bets not like anything big I'm not going to Vegas and going to the 538 casino but I've I've made more than my fair share of bets with journalists and other people in basketball where they're setting Raptor and I'm like I bet that doesn't happen <laughs> um, you know like when you under well, this thing about and this is so great is like when you understand what drives the numbers you can kind of unpack them where you know every single player is distinct where if you're looking at you know something where a guy is like a low efficiency guy low low field goal percentage guy, like let's say a Reggie Evans which is a real blast from the past right. But Reggie Evans was a top 10 offensive rebounder in the league for a long amount of his career on a per-possession basis. If he's scoring incredibly high in a metric based on other metrics, I bet you that metric weights offensive rebounding very highly, right? You can kind of do the same thing with, like, steals, blocks, you know. Mm. It's very hard to find these, these perfect text cases like Reggie Evans, who does one thing incredible and everything else. He's he's about, you know, borderline average. But you can kind of generally get the feel of what's driving these metrics, right? Okay, and okay. It, once you start getting that, then all of a sudden you can start poking holes in them and being like, this is where the value is lost. I mean, in class, I was just texting my buddy who plays in the EuroLeague. He was like, what's PER about? And I'm like, PER is going to tell you that a guy grabs uncontested defensive rebounds is incredible. And Avery Bradley-type guys who are just, you know, 3 and D, and maybe everybody's the wrong guy to say because he's kind of gotten a little bit iffy. Sorry, Avery. Um, you're just doing great things. But, you know, like a guy a guy like, uh, you know, Dante DiVincenzo, I don't think probably would rate out very high in PER. And if he did, it would be driven by steals, not the fact that he's, you know, a pretty yeah, decent defender. Basically, basically, you have to look at, you know, basically how each metric is formulated pretty much, right? Truly. And the, the great yeah. thing comes back to PPP to me because, like, the great thing about PPP is that, like, what they did in baseball was they boiled down baseball to its most basic unit, and that was runs. Where, like, you know, on some days a run is worth, you know, seven runs is worth a win. On some days seven runs are worth a loss. But, like, you can generally find the pattern of, you know, when you're scoring runs, you know, at this rate, you you know, giving up runs at this rate, you win this many games, right? You can do the same thing in basketball with points. You just kind of, kind of you know, keep an eye on. You, you can do it with Pythagorean wins for a total season, giving you a win-loss percentage. Um, for total wins, excuse me, total points versus total points given up. But for individual players, it's very important to rate those points gained against on a per-possession basis because, you know, if you're not using that possession, someone else on your team would have been using that possession, and they would have scored at a certain rate, right? So it's got to all be weighted against an average. But, you know, it, it, you can definitely, you know, you can't ever be 100% certain using PVP about things, but you can use it to, to drive action where, you know, if you're a player and you've got – and you're at a decision point. Like if you're, you know, Jason Maples, you're, on, you're running a fast break and you're catching the ball in the right wing, mm-hmm. you know, it's a three-on-two. And let's say you're a 50% three-point shooter. <laughs> Take that shot, right? It doesn't matter how much time. If you're open, take that shot, right? Right, right, right. Where it gets 
tough, though, is that not most guys aren't 50% three-point shooters. Most guys are, like, 38% three-point shooters. And they're, you know, like, maybe 55% of the rim, which, you know, if you run those numbers, they come out very, very close, especially when factoring fouls. But this is where you can go into the guts of, like, you know – Maybe this would be different on the right wing versus the left wing, depending on what player it is. You know, this is really an NBA argument. This is more like a high school and college argument. But yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're a 1.2 points per possession finisher with your right hand around the rim, and you know you're a 0.8 uh, points per possession finisher with your left hand around the rim, and you also take 33% less shots at the rim. You know, because some turn into floaters or mid-ranges, which are inherently also about 0.8, you know, 0.9 points possession shots. If you're a 38% three-point shooter and you're catching on the left wing, all of a sudden you know what to do, right? <laughs> You've got a roadmap to success where, like, you don't, you don't need to know, you know, like, I, I love MGrads. MGrads introduced me once um, to, a, uh, to a very prominent agent. He said, this guy will tell you how many times LeBron dribbles before he farts on average. And, like, internally I kind of wanted to die. But <laughs> it was such a funny thing to say that, like, I just – I can't help but laugh at it. It's just so funny, but, like, it kind of takes into, you know, it, it's a great way of encapsulating, like, you know, the more fractured, the more granular your data is, the better chances it's not something that's actionable or practical. But if you just get these basic, like, roadmap drivers where you understand your game better than you did yesterday, you're probably going to make better, more efficient decisions, and your team's going to win more games, you're going to score more points, you're going to get more slaps on the back, right? You hear this, guys? Use analytics to push the game forward, Okay. It's, oh, not a, I mean, hey, it's not a smart. It's not a smart guy competition. Thank you. Jim. No, it's not. I mean, dude, like I, I can't compete with these, with some of these degrees, man. Like I, I go to some of these rooms. And I can't compete with these degrees. But you know where I can compete is if there's a player sitting in front of us. I can talk basketball player to him. And you know, maybe, maybe people skills. People skills. Yeah, and well, you know, and it's just like, and I, I hate to to make it like you know sound like that. I, I I'm very confident in what I do, but at the same time, like I, I truly believe that like the fact that like you know I, I went like you know when I was first starting off, a lot of these analyst guys were like, don't even try to have conversations with them. You know, like you just you can't. And I was like, that seems strange. Like I played AAU my entire life. I was a college player. Like you know, like I, I played against guys who were in the league, man. Like you know, I, I can't talk to their buddy. And you know, <laughs> next thing you know, I start talking with them, and it's just like you know, we're having a conversation like this, where it's like maybe you know, you're not going to give over your entire process to analytics now because you've gotten to where you are in life by not being an analytics guy. But I'm not help, right? the Jason Maples, you know, process because I'm not Jason Maples. That's fine. But we can also learn something from each other, and maybe we can grow a little bit. And, you know, next thing you know, if you need an analytics guy, you know, I'm your guy. And if you and if I need someone, you know, in the Bay Area to talk about why Coach Carter isn't claimed by anybody in the Bay Area, I know exactly. <laughs> Please don't 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 ruin the show bringing up that that. Oh, I was I grew up I grew up in such a small town that when I watched that movie, I asked my dad, "Where's Richmond?" He said, "Virginia." Oh, like, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't even know that it was California. Richmond, CA, not VA. Oh, man, dude, dude mind-blown when I figured that out for the first time. I think it was maybe your tweet, even. So, listen, my, my last analytics question is this. So, I, I've grown to embrace analytics. Like, I've, I've, I've started, started to study them, try to understand where they come from, just because I want to go in my understanding of the game, right? Right. To this day, I've been studying analytics for a while. I despise defensive analytics. I mean, this, that's the one analytic I will not get on board with. Literally. ESPN Stats and Info tweeted out after the game. I don't know if you saw that tweet I put up, and the guy deleted it. He, I think you DM me making sure you're like, you saw this, right? Like, so this crazy, right? The, the ESPN Stats and Info tweeted out, uh, you know, Brandon Ingram was 0 for 5 being thinned by Royce O'Neal. I went to the ESPN, to the NBA.com <laughs> advanced box score, pulled up the film from his FGAs. 
three of his first six shots, he's blown by Royce O'Neal for a dunk, a layup, and then hit a, a shimmy fadeaway, fadeaway mid-range on him. And I'm like, how the hell do you watch that or track that and say he was over five defended by Royce O'Neal? Oh, man, they I... use that to determine defensive player of the year, all defensive right. players. It's, like, it, it's mind-boggling. So talk to me about these defensive metrics that are clearly inaccurate. So, so the one that you're talking about, the one that gets cited often is a matchup stat. And I can actually tell you that one is computed by once the ball crosses half court, oh, um, the person who gets the possession attributed to them defensively is the person who stands closest to the person on offense for the longest amount of time. And so if you think, about, yeah, right. Like, you know, and your, your mind's already going like 10 different directions on how this is corruptible, right? As is mine, you know, but like, and it's, this is why, like, you know, you can't just you can't just slap a nice label, a fancy label on a stat and be like it's a good stat. And like, don't get me wrong, like, you know, over those possessions, is it indicative that you're probably going to find more possessions than not where the player is the one actively guarding him? Yeah, of course, that's kind of the whole point. But like at the same time, basketball is such thin margins that like, you know, if if a player comes off two flare screens, and he's incredible. If it's JJ Redick and he comes off two, you know, elevator screens and gets six points that's going to skew everything massively out of, you know, out, out of relationship to, to right. one another. But, you know, so it, it's tough because, like, that's kind of, you know, so I, 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 these areas in analytics where it's so hard to really, and, like, this is where, like, there, there's a science component of analytics where, like, don't get me wrong, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my, of my spreadsheets of, of what they are. <laughs> Like, you know, I, I look at those spreadsheets and I, I literally think about all the times I've, I've, I've literally cried trying to make a spreadsheet. And I'm like, I'm not this stupid. Like, why can't I figure out why this does not work? Um, you know, but like going back and looking through me, I'm very proud of it. Like, you know, I, I worked with a, with a high major D1 program, you know, um, this, this current year. And I had a kid, I think it was a manager or a GA reached out to me. Like, hey, I want to learn about like, you know, like you put together like, you know, so I put together these like very long reports. And I think, like, three pages out of, like, 50 in this one were about, like, lineup combinations. He's like, I want to learn how to do that. And I'm like, I can show you where the information is as far as how this all works together. And, like, like there, there were lineup combinations that I highlighted as being, like, you know, this is, this is something that I believe is a trend that will continue to hold. There were lineup combinations where, like, the numbers were saying, like, this lineup combination was unplayable. Or I was like, I think you're probably fine. This is variance. Like, that's where – and like, like trying to just accumulate all this knowledge and like understand like it all works together and like, you know, like, like, you know, moving your opinion around a matter of like degrees within your brain, you know, based on whatever new information, trying to weigh it all together. You know, so like I told him like, dude, I can show you where to get this, but like, you're honestly going to need to like study this for four years. Right. To, right. to really feel good going to your head coach and be like, give me a promotion. I can do this. Cause like, you know, it, it's a, like even now, and I, I've worked with, I mean, I, I used to have a goal of guys where I was like, if I work with this many guys, I, I feel like I made it. And like, I've, I've like tripled that at this point. So I feel pretty good about that. Like, you know, it's literally like I, I can go, I just got a new batch of guys coming in from, from a mutual friend of ours, actually. Um, you know, I can go in and like the guys that I haven't started the analysis yet, I have no roadmap for what I'm going to say because I don't know. Right. Like I, I have to watch all this film. And I have to, you know, and I have to try to weigh this all together. This comes back to defensive analytics because like, that's, that's a big part of like, you know, on a game, it's like my fully vested clients, they get scouting reports from me, you know, and it's, if you want to talk about like an inefficiency of, you know, 
of uh, basketball as far as like a team sports that like coaches like you are so overworked that, you know, you have to kind of put one scouting report on one language. And if you're making tweaks and trying to personalize it, it's very small. It's a very narrow scope. Right. And yeah, so you're, you're telling you're me. Guys, yeah, no, and, and I, hey, do I blame you for that? No, man, do pay you guys more. You just you don't have more time to work on the scout, right? But, like, you know, the, the first ever client I got in the NBA, I got because he couldn't read his scouting report. They, they would give it to him, and it was in a language. You know, this is an NBA team. They give him the scouting report. Wow. And it, it, like, he just, like, you know, for, for how he thought about basketball and how he thought about his place and his, and his opponent's place, this is a player who literally – did not conceptualize that a 40% three-point shooter is somebody who's like Clay Thompson overall and a 30% three-point shooter is someone who's like Josh Smith overall. And yeah. so like, I, so I got brought in to try to, you know, like better, you know, just like, it's like we, we literally translate. <laughs> no, not even translate, just rip it all down and try to uh, try to figure out something, you know, once again, am I trying to show how smart I am this player? Am I trying to help him? Stick trying, to, trying to help him, trying to help him. Truly. And so like, we literally like, like our system, this is not a perfect system. It just was what we felt like was the best option was we would, I would study There's a we because there, there's a person who would convey the information further. So it was even the game of telephone in this player, but I would study the lineups like, you know, they were on the floor and you know, like, like who would play at what time, what those people were good or bad at. And then I, we would literally print it out to him in a form of like, in the first quarter, you should look for this. In the second quarter, you should look for this. Third quarter, you should look for this. And it was analytics, but it was, it was packaged in a way that was, you know, less precise, but was more actionable. This player was like, you know, he'd look up and it'd be the third quarter. And be like, all right, I'm looking to on high pick and rolls, get in the left wing and drop left corner. You know, I'm like, once again, like, this isn't something you can, you can do in every single possession, but like my philosophy of working with, with guys has always been like, if I can help you understand one strength you didn't know you had or t- and a weakness you didn't, you didn't know you had, elevate the strength, lower the weakness. And then on a game by game basis, I get you two easy ones and we eliminate one to two bad shots, you know, like where your strength is matched up with their strength and their strengths is better. I've done a good job, but you know, like what goes into that is like literally hours upon hours of watching these, you know, like, like running these numbers and I seeing like these numbers on defense, because this is the nugget that I probably should have led with offense is proactive and defense is reactive. And so, you know, you're, you're better able to influence your own outcomes on offense because you have the ball in your hands and you're able to drive action than on defense when you're always trying, you know, and obviously every coach says like good defenders are, you know, proactive ones. They force you. But how many guys actually have the ability to do that? Very right? little. Very few. Yeah. Very few. You know, like everyone very else is, is playing catch up and they're trying to get you to come back yep. to you know, their strength. But yep. numbers are so, are so variable and, you know, like you have to weigh in the fact that like the number that I'm seeing based on the possession size that, you know, like the sample I can look at, falls somewhere on a bell curve. I have to try to figure out with the best guess, like, is that 0.9 points per possession? Is he a 0.9 defender? Or did he just – is he a point – you know, is he a 1.2 points per possession defender? And he just happened to get incredibly lucky on missed shots. And, like, the, <laughs> yeah. the range that I just described is very minimal. You know, it's like it's roughly – it's 10% better from three. It's 15% better from two, 10% better from three. But it, it encapsulates the entire scope of the NBA, 0.3. Every single player in the NBA – you know, this high volume player falls within 0.3, you know, the maximum is within 0.3 of the minimum. So, you know, when you're looking at 20 possession sample sets, that's where the basketball background comes in, where I have to look at these 20 possessions, study them, and if I pick up on something, we just got to run with it. And if I'm correct more often than I'm I'm incorrect, we're going to benefit. And if I screw up, you know, it's, I I try not to, but I also, (laughs) I don't bat, you know. Hey, shoot and shoot. Hey, man, that was the <laughs> one thing I did. Defense, nah. 
Dude, I, I mean, like, I, I, I played defense for maybe one possession in my career, and I tore my ACL on it. So, you know, like, that, that just goes. That was, that was a sign from above. Oh, yeah. No, that was a sign <laughs> from Tyus Jones. He threw the pass. I said, you're not going to the league, dude. Read up on those books. Uh, so, first of all, thanks for that, that, that discussion. I think it's very important to just be open to hear, hear about the game in different, in different ways and be open to changing your mind. So, thank you for that. Also, hey, can, I, can I add one thing to the analyst discussion? Yeah. I have found that basketball people, if you're a basketball guy, Jason, I consider you a basketball guy, not an analyst guy. That might, that's not really a hot take, I don't feel like. But if, no, it's not. If that's that's, that is. I have found that basketball people get the rap of being the ones who are militantly anti-analytic. And I've also found that when I talk with basketball people like you, you guys actually understand more practical analytics than you get any amount of credit for. <laughs> people don't want to ever talk about that. You can look at a Sinji page and identify, like, you know, strengths and weaknesses based off, off you know, distribution of, of who's doing what, who's showing a tell that they are, their left hand's weaker than their right versus, you know, which players are, look, are looking to get downhill only to 18 feet and kick out, you know, to the arc on, on, a, on a pick and roll. And I, I have found that, you know, like, like sometimes there's almost an arrogance in the, in the basketball analyst community of, like, we don't need to understand this. We're, we just track the numbers. You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's. I think that's that that disconnect we've just. You know. That's not everybody, but like, you know, not, I, I'm I'm I I obviously collect a certain type of person in, in my you know in my orbit. And, you know, for the analyst guys, I always try to tell them like, you know, you've got to play basketball, man. You got to go up. <laughs> you got to play pickleball. You also got to understand like what you're seeing in pickleball is probably not what's happening on the floor. So don't get cocky because you play <laughs> pickleball the Y. You know, but but like right. you know, if you if if you can't tell me you know who who misses rotation like. Right, and stuff like that, yeah. You know? So, we got that down. I really wanted to have a conversation. Thank you, man. (laughs) Turned to a bit of a rant. Yeah, it's all good. So, let's let's talk about this bubble. So, um, (laughs) I've seen in the past few months you have changed your championship pick three times. I need to know why and and where it is now after what we – first of all, we just saw the Lakers, you little – you know, not well, play great and go down. Actually, I think Toronto made them not play great. So I think, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I was full disclosure. I was not really tuned into that game. Yeah. I was working on the couch and it was on the background. <laughs> yeah, so the, so the Raptors pretty much handled the Lakers, just both ends. It was tough. So you first you had the um, – your first was it first the Bucks or the Clippers first? So you it was first. Clippers first. I, I really Clippers liked first, Clippers. Yeah, then, then the Bucks, and then you said recently you switched to the Lakers. Describe – you just real quickly describe, you know, what you see from each team and why what, why they might win, why they won't win. Just, you know, what do you think is, you know, where's your oh, train of thought there? Yeah, no, you you just you just open up the candy store for the fat kid, man. We'll see <laughs> how long this section is. Um, but, uh, but for, I mean, for the Clippers, what really drew them to me first and foremost was I feel like, you know, I, I think of basketball first and foremost in, in terms of archetypes where a certain type of player – you know, we're like, what's a great example? Like Tobias, like I saw, I saw a comparison of like Tobias Harris and TJ Warren today. They are different, but at this point, you know, because the fact that TJ has become a very good shooter, and, and, yeah, you know, yeah, leaps and bounds. And that that's not even just like you know recency biases. He killed Philadelphia uh, today, but you know he he's really put in the work, and I think he's above forty last year even from three. But you know, like those those players are dissimilar enough where I would feel better with CJ Warren getting downhill versus Tobias Harris. I feel like Tobias Harris playing himself for a few more mid ranges. Um, I feel better about Tobias Harris and catch and shoot scenarios though. But they're basically similar in the sense like they're scoring shooting wings, right? They're, you know, when they're, they're utilized best, so they're getting a lot of shots from from the arc. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I definitely like 
see when I when I go like you know there's analytical tells on like what type of players what type who might be actually miscast in their roles another you know a uh, uh, former I've been able to add value to my clients where it's like hey bro you, you think you're an ISO guy no nah, you're a three and D guy <laughs> it's like you know if, if if being an ISO guy is worth fifty million dollars you say no more but that's how much you're, you're lighting on fire by being an ISO guy right now. Um, <laughs> But so for the Clippers, for me, I thought they were just a well-built team from the jump where I felt like they did not have, like, you know, the archetypes I, I do not really value very highly. Uh, wing players who cannot shoot. Um, if there's anything that, like, and don't get me wrong, like, hey, is in theory Giannis a wing guy who can't shoot? You can argue he's a point guy who can't shoot. You can argue he's a center who, who handles the ball who can't he's shoot. He's a freak. Yeah, he's, yeah, like, you know, he, he's, he's a guy, you know, there, there are 15 or so guys who, you know, you, you can't archetype, right? Like, they, yeah. they have so much value and just in such chaotic ways that it's just, it's pointless, right? Um, but, you know, so the wing guys who can't shoot, I don't like lane, lane, you know, they're lane clogger, right? Like, you know, and a lane clogger can also be a post-up big. It can also be a, uh, um, it can be a wing guy who just doesn't cut hard. Um, I've seen, you know, you want to talk about where, where wings sometimes or guards sometimes clog, clog up offenses don't even realize that if they only cut hard when, when they think they're getting the ball and when they don't get the ball, they trail off. You're going to find very few offenses that are efficient with those guys in that system. Right, 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 right. You know, when I think about archetypes that I like, I like guys who are high volume, high efficiency. It does not often matter where it comes from. You know, Giannis's guy would not be someone that traditionally would be embraced in, uh, you know, because he can't shoot, but frankly, his value overrides all that and then some. Um, and then I look for three and D wings, and I look for uh, I look for centers who can defend and switch. Excuse me, bigs who can defend and switch multiple positions. Um, I look for bigs who are high efficiency either as a shooter or on their dives and pick and roll or their dump downs. And you know when, when I just you know just like those are my three favorite and three least favorite archetypes of players. The Clippers are just stacked full of the guys that I like, right? Like you know if if, if Zubak is is the guy that I'm looking at, like where he's the biggest question mark, you know, as far as like archetype wise in that team, because you know he's a guy who can kind of switch. He's a guy who's like very solid around the rim, but not great, right? Like if he's the weakest link, and that's you know th- this is praise. I think Zubac is a guy one on my team, and you know for his price point in that role, um, that's a pretty good team, right? That's just a well built team. I he's love the weak link. If he's the weak link, yeah. Right, and I, you know, and I've, I've said this for about three or four years now, where um, you know I, th- there was a moment there where the Roy Hibbs of the world, you know, the low usage, you know, defensively impactful centers were just like these like crazy, like oh they're ghosts analytically unless you look at the right numbers like defensive rating and then they show up. I really think that like um, on ball you know, point guards, even like ball handling shooting guards who are not high usage, but are high efficiency. Your Patrick Beverly's of the world, your Tyus Jones's of the world. I think those archetypes are the Roy Hibberts of 10 years ago, right? Where, you know, when you're looking to add a team, you know, you're Mikel Bridges even, where he's not really a ball handler, he's just a wing guy. The, the guy who can seamlessly add, who does not disrupt, you know, the flow of the offense, you know, where everyone else who are already scoring at a high rate want to get their shot. Right, um, right. Yeah, so, you know, if, if you're if you got a team with, with Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George, you should be dying to get Patrick Beverly. If you got a team with LeBron AD, you should have been dying to get Patrick Beverly right because he's going to defend he's going to make threes and he's not going to need the ball so anyway that's why I love the Clippers and I mean their depth to me was just you know otherworldly I think Montrez Harrell is one of the most underrated players in the NBA somehow still um where it kind of started getting shaky for me was when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard their PPP just you know like they, they had a very severe drop off from where they were the previous season you know their, their roles really didn't change a whole lot if anything they were probably even better suited maybe not in Kawhi's situation because Toronto is just a very good system it appears but Paul George Probably should have been in a better situation, right? So my question is, this is where the nuance comes in, because you got six or seven new players, right? Right. Doesn't that chemistry building fall into how it might take a little longer to get those guys back up to 
know, up to playing with new guys, right? Does that, does that factor into that number? It, it, you know, it does a little bit, but I, I, it's, it's all on a nuanced basis, right? Like, I, right. I think the, I think that the, 70, the, excuse me, the, the um, 76ers did not do this. The Clippers did this, where the, the guys they brought in had a pretty seamless fit. And I, I always advise, you know, this is another analytical thing, like, it's not very well, you know, understood or documented that I, that I found works in my professional line, so I keep saying it, but a usage crunch can exist where basketball is a social game, right? You know, it, it, so if you think about usage rate, right, everybody, there's five guys in the four, there's 100% of possessions available. The average usage rate, therefore, is 20. You know, if, if Jason, if I'm a scoring big and you're a scoring point guard and we, we're like, okay, our non-negotiables are we have to have at least 30% of possessions, that all of a sudden takes up all but 40% for the other three guys, right? right. So yeah, there's another guy on the team who's like, bro, I take up 30% of shots, um, are the other two guys only going to take up 5% a piece or is, is, are guys going to stop making the extra pass? Are guys going to stop <laughs> passing in general? Are guys going to stop, you know, are, are, are all of a sudden guys going to be leaving, you know, defensive assignments, trying to go grab an, uh, a defensive rebound so they can bring the ball up and shoot it? Like these, these are the small things you can, can't really ever quantify in a basketball game. At least we can't yet. Maybe in 20 years we'll be able to. But I've found time and time again, you know, like you need you need to have you know like the preferred like if everybody has like an internal usage rate, we're like you know if if, if I'm if I'm a player where I'm happy if I'm anywhere from like 28 to 20, you know, and I'm, I'm best suited at 25. You know, if, if you can add like all those preferred usage rates for that player to be 25, you can add them together and they're within like you know if they all add up to like you know 110 percent or 90 percent, it can probably work, right? It's better to be closer to 100, but like you know, the ball's gonna move and zip around. But I feel like pretty much every line for the same assistant who's me, the, the Clippers put on the floor this year, like that felt like a pretty seamless thing. Where like you know, mm. you gotta have somebody like uh, who's who's on the Heat, uh, wing shooter, um, you, you ninth man. Why am I drawing a blank on him? They got him for free. Um, oh, this is gonna bug me so much. Um, but you, you gotta have a guy in that role, a low usage three point shooting guy, if you're gonna have Lou Williams on the floor, because Lou Williams wants to use a lot of possessions. Montrezl Harrell wants to use a lot of possessions. So I, just, I feel like they were a very well built, seamless team. You know, okay. I, felt, I felt like the Lakers were not. So that's why I started with them at least. Yeah. So that was my. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like the way it's built, you would think it would be seamless. But like you said, basketball is a social game. There's chemistry. There's other stuff involved. You know. That's why, we, that's why we talk about these things, right? <laughs> I, 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 I think that Kawhi might be a little bit more banged up than he's letting on. I think Paul George is more banged up than he's letting on. He's gotten it appears healthier, but like yeah, Paul looks know, really, he, Paul looks really good in the bubble though. Those the, the scrimmage games and even the first two games, he they lost to the Lakers, but he was he was special that Lakers game despite right. turnovers, but then. I guess the Pelicans today, he was just out of the everyone, Everyone's going to look special when they're shooting 60% from three. But he looks good. He, he looks healthy. He looks healthy. He looks, healthy. He, looks healthy. He, looks, he looks healthier. He looks more confident. And if he gets back, you know, and Kawhi's able to recapture some amount of his Toronto, he's like right now, he's had like a point one two points for possession efficiency drop, which is very big if you're going from a guy who's like adding point two point one two you know, points for possession over 1,500 possessions. That's a lot of points, right? Yeah. Um, one of my pitches I always make to college coaches and working with me is like, how much money would you pay to start every single game up three zero right <laughs> I get oh my poof you know it's like oh we would we would give you the all the king silver if you could give us three points on the scoreboard you know and you know for for a player like Kawhi that's effectively what he was doing he's adding three points in marginal value and they went from that to adding like one or so at the beginning of the year so you know if he's able to get back to like you know he's adding two Paul George is adding like 2.5 all of a sudden you know, you've got a very good defensive team and a whole bunch of efficient guys who are, you know, like even before you take into account, like their superstars are adding what they're adding, like, you know, accounting for that already. That's a pretty good 
you know, starting point, right? It's like, that's kind of always how I think of, like, I always think about basketball in terms of, like, marginal contributions. But, um, okay. that's, like I said, this is, that's why I had you on, just looking at basketball differently. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, talk to me just uh, why you went from just, you know, talk about the, the Bucks and the Lakers, what made you switch and what, you know, the, comparing those two teams. This, here's that's, that's, that's my finals pick, by the yeah. way. Like, the, 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 the Raptors, the Raptors are, you know, give me 2004 Detroit Piston vibes, but the Bucks and Lakers are my, is my finals pick. So tell me about, you know, what do you think about those two teams as far as matching up and what they do? Man, I, I've got good news. I filled up on, on Hershey's Kitchen. The fat kid in the, in the store filled up on, on <laughs> the, So these will be faster. But, like, at, at a certain, you know, to me the biggest question with the Bucks was how much were they going to miss Malcolm Brogdon. I think they still miss him a little bit, obviously. But, like – Dante I, took a big step, though. Dante, Dante yeah. And I, I think I think by some defensive metrics, like, you know, defensive real plus minus, he's probably overrated. Because, like, he's a guy who shows up well in those metrics where I feel like his positional defending isn't great, so he's a bit of a higher variance guy. But against a bad team, he's just going to be jumping every pass and like making <laughs> – you know, right. all sorts of hell to defend them, which is great when you're playing a bad team, but, like, that becomes less of a potentially sustainable thing against better teams, you know. And you, bully, bully ball defenders are generally guys who give who lower your ceiling while giving, you know, great statistical noise. But, like mm-hmm. I said, I'm not sure if that's entirely Dante, but that's just kind of what I'm, I'm looking when I see him right now where he can learn a little bit. On, anyway, getting back, positional defense could get better. Um, but for the Bucks, it just became, you know, like, w- once a team is just able to – and I think Giannis just really um, – he has gone to a different level as a shooter, even though it sometimes does not feel that way when you're watching him airball. But he's actually now getting to the point where, like, I maybe it's a year off, but I don't feel great when he goes into those threes anymore. If I'm if I'm going, you know, if I'm rooting for a team that's against you know the Bucks, where um, it, it feels like if he's catching and he's just confidently taking, he's not doing that up fake thing to see if the defense is, is closing out and trying to go past him. Yes, you're gonna to have to shoot fifty percent for them to start closing out on you. Because if you move an inch towards him, it's a dunk, man. Like right. I, you know, hire me. That's what I would say. Anyway, yeah. um, but so the, the Bucks were just so dominant before the stoppage, and you know, it's funny because like the last marquee game, the NBA season felt like that Bucks Lakers game, and the Lakers had their number that night, but the Bucks it felt like just could not hit a, hit a shot from three. A lot of so, times, that's what it's a make or miss league. Sometimes, man. That, really. that's, yeah. I mean, and Brooke Lopez is, is kind of feeling that right now. He was a guy who was like, man, Brooke Lopez, where was this guy been? He's Flash Mountain. He was shooting like 36% last year. Now he was he was flirting with like the 20s, you know? Yeah, it, was, it was real low. I was like, he was real off this year. The fact he, he was that low and they were still dominating. Right. That was the... And I mean, I think I think their defense just like you know, and I'm not been the biggest um, Eric Bledsoe guy, but I think he's you know when when he's on the floor, their defense truly can become fantastic. Offensive fit is sometimes iffy with with Giannis, and that's where I felt Brogdon was probably the better call. But anyway, like at a certain point, the dominance factor of the Bucks, like I just I, I feel like that if it wasn't going to be the Clippers, it had to be the Bucks because at a certain point in the summer, there were you know of the four contending teams, there were really serious contenders. I'm sorry, Philadelphia fans, you guys were never serious contenders at any point this year. Nathan, I love you, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? um, but uh, but it, it truly felt like that they were, you know, among the contending teams, there were maybe th- three guys who had a hope of defending Giannis for a long stretch, a seven-game series. I'm, I didn't think it was LeBron. I thought it was Kawhi and Paul George, and I thought it was probably Pascal Siakam. I think LeBron can defend Giannis for spurts, but over a seven-game series, I don't know. Um, I really, and I, I'm rooting for that. That would be really fun. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't. So I just, I, I felt like that, you know, once the Clippers' offensive efficiency was leaving a little bit to be lacking, you know, a little bit to be wanting, 
I feel like it was just a better choice to go with the Bucks. Is like when you go into the nuts of like how they lost that series against Toronto, they their, their role guys just went stone cold from three. That's what yeah. they. And those guys are going to be tested because they're not, they're not going to let Giannis beat you. So those guys are going to be tested again. So you think they come through this year? I do. I mean, and this maybe this is just where like you know, and this is potentially this is one of the, the critiques of analytics, right? Is that like I, I view everything potentially too sometimes as cold and calculating. Where you know, if a guy performs poorly. Um, on, on his unguarded catch-and-shoot attempts in the postseason situation, I oftentimes default to writing off the variance. That bites me in the butt sometimes when, like, you know, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a social game. There are psychological aspects to basketball. Um, you know, and I, I experienced this as a player, too, where my, my sophomore year I was coming up back-to-back knee surgeries, um, did not play a single sanctioned game in two and a half years. And I went from a guy who, like, I felt great about my offensive scoring repertoire. Like, I would shoot the ball from 10 feet. I'm like, I don't know if that's going off the glass. You're going to hit the rim. Like, I, I literally, I, you know, it's like in the, once you start, you know, getting that going where you don't know where the ball's going when you're shooting. It's tough. It's real tough. Yeah, these, these are not Division three Minnesotans. These are pros. But, like, yeah. you know, once once you've missed eight, especially in a big moment, you know, you'd be kind of a weirdo if that didn't affect you at all, right? Like, there's, there's like, three guys in NBA history that you can say that did not affect at all, and we talk about how weird and psychopathic they are all the time, right? So I, I do think – I have to believe they're not going to shoot as poorly as they did last year. That being said, like, I, I don't feel as good about Lopez. Um, I guess Chris Milton didn't pick up a basketball for three months. I, I would argue he's a top ten player, you know, but, like, that that's concerning. He's played well so far, but, like – you don't you don't love to hear that, um, you know. But I, yeah, I just I, I I definitely I think at this point it's definitely going to. I should say definitely. But I, I, if I had to guess what the finals are going to be, I would guess Lakers Bucks because you know there, there are certain factors about the Lakers you probably shouldn't vocalize on a podcast. We ain't trying to get nobody fired out here, man. No, no, no. But I mean the phone buzzes every once in a while. Right, right, right. right. Uh, phone buzzes. Um, but I just I, I I felt like that like you know if there was any team. Um, that would be able to manage a three-month disruption. It's somebody like LeBron's team where LeBron is going to have those guys working. He's going to have those guys, you know, staying up to date, staying in shape. Um, LeBron understands, like, like you know, it's, it's funny. Like, one of the first things I always try to do with the players, like, what when I work with the player, what drives you? Because, like, so often we try to put players in boxes, right? Like, you know, in, in a way, this is probably where I probably am the closest to a coach like you, right? You're trying to figure out what incentivizes your player. I was very blessed in college. I, I played my final stop in Division three. My coach had a PhD in psychology, so I was able to learn, like, how he navigated. Ah, that helps. Right, and just That's sponging all that up. Um, but, like, I, I always felt like that he tried to get to, like, what truly motivates a player. And, like, bad coaches do this, too, and they don't do a good job at it. They're manipulative with it. But if you can if you can figure out and be radically indifferent to what drives a player, we're like, i got to figure out what drives my client. Because if I'm trying to make him care about money or care about winning – and he doesn't care about that. He wants to be a vine, you know, not a vine, he wants to be on House of Highlights. That's fine. Um, but I'm definitely going to have to go about this relationship in a different way than I would if you were someone who's like, I, you know, screw you, pay me. You know, I, <laughs> I don't, I'll, I'll live in Siberia for one more dollar. I don't care. You know, like those guys, I, I actually kind of prefer working with those guys because they're, they're simple. It's just like make you better. We all get paid. Everyone's happy. Um, but anyway, so like I, I feel like LeBron would definitely be a great motivating factor where, you know, like he, well, I truly feel like this is not a hot take. What seems to drive LeBron is a legacy, right? Like he, LeBron really does care about how he's perceived. And, you know, he definitely wants to be perceived as well. It seems like he definitely wants to be seen as the best bass player ever. And I think that um, he understands that, like, this window is, is shrinking and that he's not going to be at the height of his powers. You know, there, there's already some signs of some amount of a analytical profile of a decline. 
Um, and I think that, like, you know, he's looking at every single season as this is my best chance, you know. Get the window closing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, if you're – if, you, if you're Talon Horton Tucker and you got LeBron in your ear blowing up your phone every single you know day for three months, I think that that motivates people, right? Right, 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 right. Like, you know, and I, I definitely think like Kuz looks pretty good so far. It looks like Kuz has been, you know, Clint Parks, good job. Um, it, it looks, ETSA, it looks, shout out Clint. Exactly, Clint, Hey man, Clint product, uh, Clint products uh, on the floor a couple nights ago, but <laughs> Kuz, Kuz looks like he's been taking this very seriously. Anthony Davis had kind of a stinker tonight, but was incredible the night before and. Um, I mean, it's all going to come down to can they get just enough shooting around these guys. And, yep, tonight they know, didn't. <laughs> right. Like, I, would, I would feel like if, if, the, if the Lakers had, you know, even like never mind Lou Will and, and Trez, like if the Lakers just had like the, the Clippers shooters, like they had Landry Shamit, I would, I would feel exponentially better about this. But like as it stands right now, I think like, you know, maybe it's 40% chance of Lakers winning, 30% chance, chance of Bucks, and then we got somewhere like, you know, I, th- I think that the – the Clippers and the Raptors make up by far the lion's share of the remaining percentage. And you got like, you know, Heat, I think could actually win it, which would really make me eat crow. Um, I think the Celtics could win it. I think the 76ers have no chance. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> play, play this back. Play this back in two months. When hey, the that yeah. is the perfect segue for our <laughs> final, final topic. So, jo- Joseph – First of all, I, I have been on the separate Simmons and Embiid train for two years now. I, I think that was uh, the foundation of the friendship. It yeah. really feels like <laughs> yeah. we were through lanterns in the night where it's like, are, are you also saying this this, this potentially crazy thing? Yeah, cool. so, so my, 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 I've always been, you know, separate Simmons and Embiid. They're, they're in each other's way from what I see. Simmons is a, incredible off the bounce. Every time he drives, though, you got Embiid and they're in the way. Uh, and B can't post up because they don't respect Simmons shooting. So they're in each other's way because they get along so well, according to reports, but on the court, it's it's clunky. So honestly, that's kind of surprising to me. I'm not going to be telling I'm in those circles being like, you know, moderate chatter. So so Joseph actually took it a step for a step further and made some pretty spicy uh, comments about Joel Embiid as a basketball player. So, Please take it away, Joseph. No, I mean like, honestly, like it, it, I, th- I think you said that really well in the sense, like, and this all comes back. Like, I view, I view building a team in, in archetypes more than anything. And like, what is Embiid's archetype? He is a post-up guy. And he can kind of shoot some threes. He's not really respected. He's like a 1.04 points per possession shooter, which in theory is giving value. But also, how many threes is going to take a game? How much is the variance going to affect? Um, you know, his roller coaster effect. Yeah, truly, you know, you, you remember, you got to win 16 out of 28 games to win a championship, right? And that, that was what's coming, I think, with Robert Covington. I'm like, in theory, I love you, but, like, you're just so volatile. We're like, <laughs> you know, and truly, like, I, dude, Robert Covington had one of my favorite plays of the year uh, last night where he tipped that ball in, like, and he's all – was funny. He missed, he missed every three and then made the one to clinch the game. <laughs> I mean, I always feel like this is where my guilt always comes in, where it's like Robert Covington is, like, unranked recruit, like, you know, mid to low major, worked his way up, like, you know, just persevered, and then, like, you know, he's – He's accepted as like really cool analytical darling. Can shoot three, steals the ball, and I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> it makes me feel like maybe I am the bad guy. Like I, I'm open to that thought, but it makes me feel like a, a less than cool dude. Whenever I'm the one who's like this great story. So anyway, um, so going so like I when I, when I view Embiid and Simmons, I, the archetypes I put them into is you know Embiid is a post up guy. Simmons is. You know, like, I, I, Unicorn's kind of been co-opted by, by seven-footers who can shoot threes, right? Like, Simmons, is a, is, he's a Pegasus, you know? He, he's the big, strong ball handler. Special. 
truly who wants who likes to pass and can make high quality passes. And then also adding the fact like he seems to take like I don't know man, TJ Warren also gave him bucks but like he, he takes he, on a game in game out basis, he really truly does seem to like care about defense. He tries it to impact the game defensively. And then like, you know, from starting from that standpoint when you look at historical precedent, like, you know, what type of guys win championships, you know, and it's, it's funny. It's like before, I, before we, we had a segment here where my power went out, actually <laughs> kitten lives in my house decided that she wanted to, to, to steal the show. But I, I started talking about how like analysts has been a sport since like literally the 1940s and fifties, like Sandy Koufax has, you know, jumped from this like spot starter relief pitcher to one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Like, you know, Cy Young year in, year out, won the MVP one year. It was spurred um, by one of the first analyst guys in sports, Alan Roth, you know, in spring training one year being like, hey, dude, this is what you perform at when you throw your first pitch for a strike. This is what you perform at when you throw your first pitch for a ball. And there were other aspects like, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm developing a lecture series on analytics right now for Surf on Tech, so, like, I have to research all this. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, there are other aspects like he changed the delivery window on his curveball that made him harder to, to, to tell. But, like, you know, Whenever something like that happens in sports, when an analytics guy does bring about big time change, oftentimes the argument is co-opted backwards against us. It seems we're like, I just heard Mark Jackson a few nights ago say that like the Warriors were not an analytical basketball team. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm they like, are the people. They had Sean Livingston. They had David West. And I'm like, they also had Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and uh, and Kevin Durant. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, I, hey, respect to Sean and David West, but like, you know, <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to compare the tales of the tape, uh, you know, beyond just the, that, those those few contributions, right? But you know, who who has been the last back to the basket pure big man to win a championship? Duncan Shaq, right? Yeah, right. Like, you know, like if, if you're saying that it was Dirk, I I really don't. No, no, no. That, 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 you didn't even play center. You know, yeah. Tyson Center was massively impactful. Um. You know, like maybe you could say like Ben Wallace, but like Ben Wallace didn't post up. <laughs> ben Wallace well, it, it, was it's it's Shaq, Shaq Duncan, I think, is the last you could probably go. True, yeah, truly. And then you know, like, when, when you compare the numbers of like how, and it's actually interesting. Like synergy goes back just barely far enough where you can you, you don't see the dominant Shaq of the three people. You see the, the the tail end of it, and you know, like his his overall efficiency is roughly the same as Joel Embiid's because Shaq was much better from the field, but he could not shoot free throws, right? Mm. Um, what happened, though, during that time is that three-point shooting became a revolution where, you know, you, you had spot shooters like, you know, Steve Kerr is a very, like, you know, Steve Kerr would never average 20 in the NBA. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, Steve Kerr was a guy who, you know, he was he was taking, like, two or three threes a game. And, all, you know, if this was today's age, he'd be Duncan Robinson, right? Like, you, you, would, you would be – you know, force feeding Kerr the ball as much as possible. See if that if that high uh, efficiency from beyond the arc can hold over a larger and larger sample size, right? Right, right, right. And, you know, all of a sudden you have guys emerging around the NBA like your Ray Allen's, your Clay Thompson's, your Steph Curry, your Damian Lillard's, and your Kyrie Irving's even. And all of a sudden you've got this just this class of players where you know what made what made Michael and Kobe so special. And I was you know I the late great Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant was my favorite player growing up. And I'm like one of the few analyst guys who would consistently go to the bat for him. I'm like, I don't think you, I think you guys are missing some of what made him. God bless you. God bless you, Joseph. (laughs) It's how you make friends, man. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but like, you know, what made those guys so special was like, they were high autonomy. They were able to get their own shot whenever they want to, for the most part, high efficiency, or at least relative efficiency. Where If you've got a guy taken, if every single team has a guy taken 15 mid ranges a night, it's in your best interest to get the best mid-range guy, right? Yes. Changing and all of a sudden there's more three-point shooters, less mid-range, it's probably better to get the best three-point shooter. But, you know, at that time, if everyone's doing it, you want to have the best guy. Anyway, 
Thank you for applying context to Kobe Bryant. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, like, I do, am I the only one? I was a little kid. Like, I remember Memphis Paul Gasol. I remember how everyone talked about Memphis Paul Gasol, man. You can't he won tell a me. playoff game until he became a teammate of Kobe's. I mean, like, I love you, Paul. Paul, but like, come on, like, we can't, we can't, we can't act like this is like the Bynum and Gasol trade. Right. Long for the anyway. We're getting way off topic. I can talk about this all night. anyway. Um, what, what happened was, you know, you, you had this, this just class of like all of a sudden just the entire landscape of efficiency around the, the NBA changed. And there's been a reason. It's not a coincidence. You know, people didn't stop teaching back to the basket post of mechanics. People didn't stop teaching the mid-range. Basketball just evolved around it. And then, you know, every single year incrementally it became like, you know, in the aggregate, there's still people who can beat this, you know, on, on individual cases, even for single seasons or careers. But right. it became like 0.5 less effective every single year. And now, 20 years later, it's a chasm. And so – you know, like when, when you compare Embiid and where he stands the rest of the league, he's a he's still decent efficiency, but like he's not he's not piling up marginal points. And if that comes at the cost of him clogging the lane, um, for someone like Ben Simmons, like Ben Simmons runs like a one point, I think it's like a one point one five PVP pick and roll. When I tell mm-hmm. people that, like, what he plays with Embiid, what people don't know, because like you know, when once you start seeing this, it's hard to see. But like Embiid has been one of the worst pick and roll players in the NBA by the numbers these past two seasons. Yeah, I saw that. I saw I saw that stat. He's not he's not yeah. very good at that, that, that's me. That was my yeah, I'm the, I'm, yeah. I'm the only one who's pushing this out there because yeah. no one really I think wants to talk about it. But like, you know, it's it's crazy to think about those two numbers where Simmons is one of the best pick and roll guys in the league. He plays one of the worst pick and roll guys in the league. And like, you know, you, you can claim like maybe defenses are reacting to Embiid in a way that like makes other guys open, but like yet whenever Embiid does not play, Simmons seems to play very well and the team shoots a ton of threes when Brett Brown lets him and they, they make a ton. And that's while being down like thirty million in salary in a in a league with a salary cap. So like in theory, they should have thirty million more to allocate around, make the team up you know, upgraded better all over the floor if they were able to, to you know, like free up that salary. So, you know, and I look at Simmons' archetype where it's hard to see it. Simmons' hard to see it before it's, it's forced upon you, right? Like five years ago, who would have ever thought that Giannis would be where he's at today? Giannis was – I remember when Shabazz uh, Muhammad was taken before Giannis because I was <laughs> – Right, 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 right. right. I was like, I don't love Muhammad, but I'd rather take Muhammad than gamble on this. Like, you know, what, what's he going to do? Well, he's not a small forward who can't shoot in as long. He's a, a, you know, a guy who's in the weight room like a maniac, and he can handle the ball. And also, he can dunk on Euro steps, like over people. Anyway, it, it's, it's hard to see it before someone else breaks the mold, right? Like, you know, and Steph Curry's another great example. Even LeBron James to an extent. Like, you know, you can see, like, he always did a bit of a Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. But, like, you know, if you were, if you were to put Nikola Pekovic on uh, the Bucks, how would it look for Giannis? And, like, that's a crazy question now because, like, we know what Giannis is and we know what Peck would do to that. But, like, let's say Peck was drafted first. Let's say Peck, you know, Giannis came into the league and it's like, whoa, 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 this is what I do. you got to adjust to me because that's kind of what's happened in Philadelphia. And, I, you know, I'm not sure if, if, if a Ben Simmons plus four shooters, like the Milwaukee approach can win a championship for Philadelphia. But I really don't feel like there's much statistical evidence that a Joel Embiid-led team – you know, where, where whatever marginal gains in B, like in B, just like a one point, I think it's like a 1.11 post-up guy, PPP. But then again, you have to factor an entry pass. The entry pass, it's, it's not a lost art. It's just a very hard pass. Like, you know, throughout NBA history, it's been the, the most turnover pass in basketball history, right? It's a hard mm. pass to make. Um, you have to factor in those. You know, it's, it's kind of a hidden cost of doing business with a post guy. You have to factor in that, you know, like some amount of drives. I don't know what percentage it is. I would say it's probably higher than 20. 20% of drives that would otherwise lead to a layup turn into 
mid-range shots, you know, and of those 20%, you know, of those 80% of drives that actually get to the rim, um, you know, there's a seven-footer pre-collapse at the rim who could have been spaced out further or potentially, you know, like caught up in a pick and roll trying to figure out if he needs to, you know, stay on the hedge or if he needs to get back to, to his diver. Um, you know, and just all these like small, it just, I, you know, and this is kind of where I get to where it's just like, I know it sounds crazy. And, it, and I'm saying this right now, Joel Embiid had 41 and 21 last night. Joel Embiid has some monster games, but um, you know, I just, I, I can't get behind a gamble where you're putting it all on a horse and then a horse of that breed has not won a championship and what, almost 20 years at this point, you know, and in that intro, 17, 17, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Seventeen. I rounded up a little bit. You caught me. Yeah. See, this is what us number guys do, right? Like we just we always look for those edges. But no, well, you're right because the Spurs Duncan was posting up way less. Like the Spurs second round of championships, he was posting yeah. up way less. It was more, you know, a lot of Parker, Ginobili, and Kawhi later on. So yeah, it's, it's been a while. If you don't want to think about 2000, like I, I, I was, I can tell you exactly where I was when I was watching that game with them. Ray hit that three, and I can tell you exactly where I was the next year when the Spurs won. But like, have you ever seen the 76 or Have you ever seen Joel Embiid able to, 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 you know, facilitate ball movement like late career Duncan? You know, if, if you're going to do it right. with a post-up yeah. guy, um, like you know, and yeah. who, who's the tall Brazilian who, who fizzled out after the Spurs? Tiago Splitter. You know, yeah. these, these guys weren't they were back to the basket, but at the same time, like they were very team oriented team concept. And like you know, you can claim that Simmons is clogging that up. But, like Simmons is a great cutter. Simmons like loves to cut, and he just doesn't really have anywhere to cut into or anywhere to drive into. So I know, I know, this is the thing about radical thinking that drives me crazy, and this is kind of <laughs> what I got into independent analytics was like my first ever project was an 800 hour MBA project. It was six years worth of cumulative data. It had taken 11 year sample size on intentionally missed free throws because, you know, there was, there just wasn't enough in six years. And, you know, the response I got from the, the front offices I talked to was like, this makes sense. This is really good. Like this checks out. I Dean Oliver sign off on it. It was like the godfather of basketball analytics, but yet everyone was like, we're never going to do this. Even if we buy it from you, we're never going to do this. And so it's just like, man, why am I wasting my time trying to pull teeth on something that probably is going to add wins, even though it's radical, when I could go somewhere else? And so, like, you know, radical strategies are always kind of like, like looked down upon their time, right? Where what until we're they work until they hit, baby. And then, and then people <laughs> retroactive like, oh yeah, I thought it was a bad fit. It's like, no, everyone's everyone thinks it's a bad fit. What's what's your <laughs> solution, man? You know, you, you can right. you get 50,000 followers and you can have the blue check mark. I, if you don't have solutions, there's a reason why you're writing, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, man. So man, we ran a little long, but this was great information. Man. Always, I just, man. I, I, I'm, I, I'm about to throw up all this chocolate and all these the candies. I, the fact in the candy store just went. Just trust went me, man. I, I did not mind at all. This was a great <laughs> conversation that I think that needed to happen about as far as analytics and eye test. And a lot of it is I see we're seeing the same thing, just taking a different road to get there. And honestly, <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, I mean, like, how, how much did we actively disagree on this podcast? And right, we, didn't right. we didn't talk about Bull Bull. So, that, you know, that was that was a strategic decision on your I, part. I didn't, I didn't want the podcast to go three hours. That's why we didn't talk about Bull Bull. We've been arguing for an hour. I, I'm, I'm rooting for you, Bull, if you're listening. I truly am. I'm not mad, uh, I'm mad at other people. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, man, I want to thank Joseph for coming on. Follow him at uh, – what's your Twitter handle again, man? Joseph uh, May. Yeah, Joseph Gill and I've been trying Joseph to get Gill and follow Merck Analytics as well. Joseph was a great follow. He helps you see the game from somewhere different. Um, again, appreciate you guys for tapping in, listening for this long. Uh, we will be back next week. Thank you so much. We are out of here.